I'm Ben Horton. I'm Mariana Vieira, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Undercurrents. You've heard a lot from us in recent weeks, but we're really thrilled that you've stuck with us. And uh, thanks very much for (laughs) tuning in so much. I'm joined in the media studio in person for the first time in what seems like ages by my colleague Mariana Vieira. How are you doing, Mariana? I'm good, Ben. The media room is just as freezing as before. I think some (laughs) things never really changed. Uh, But how are you? That's right. Death taxes and and freezing cold media studios. (laughs) Precisely. Yeah, I'm I'm very well. I had a very nice relaxing weekend and uh, Thank you. actually my week's going all right. It's it's nice to have a bit of downtime in a way. I mean, I've still got a to-do list as long as my arm, but at least I'm not sort of traveling around and I don't seem to have as many meetings. I don't know whether that's a reflection on me personally. People don't want to meet with me anymore, but it's very nice. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure whether it reflects on that, but I think meetings are like printers. They can sense your fear. And so maybe you shouldn't mention that mm. too loudly and too widely. Also true. The calendar will fill up. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, but uh, how's it going on the World Today magazine? You're all very busy at the moment. Indeed, uh, we're finishing up the editorial process for the next issue, which comes out uh, early December. So it's the December-January issue, which is a bit of a weird one because it sort of needs to look back at 2021, but also have a bit of a forward-looking side to it. And mm. we're working on a really exciting cover story uh, around COVID plus two. It's really like, exciting? <laughs> I mean... <laughs> I promise you we've tried to make it as exciting as COVID and it's terrible twos could possibly be. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Can't wait to read. Yeah, it must be a strange one. I mean, so much has happened. How mm. do you decide what to prioritise or not? You'll find out Ooh. in December. There we go. All <laughs> will be revealed. And, and we will, of course, as soon as the issues come out, we will, of course, share the link and let you know about it on the podcast. But Mariana, why don't we move on now to this week's episode? Who did you speak to? So this week, my interview was about the politics of language survival and technology. I spoke to James Griffiths, who is an author, journalist, and currently the Asia correspondent for The Globe and The Mail, which is a Canadian national news organization. So and perhaps more relevant than his current role is that he's currently based in Hong Kong and he's a Welsh speaker. Hong Kong is basically the stronghold for Cantonese. And these are two of the languages that he talks about as the main case studies for his new book, called Speak Not, Language, Identity and the Politics of Empire. So as you might have guessed by now, we talked uh, about his book, the main points that he makes around the models for language revival Mm. uh, and the implications of why their imperial policies, especially when it comes to education in these places. So it's Hong Kong or Cantonese, Welsh and uh, Hawaiian. On top of that, it was super interesting to hear James talk about activism and technology as the two ways in which language movements have gone about their processes of revival and revitalization. I can't wait to have a listen. Yeah, so that's the kind of main interview for this episode. But before that, you'll also hear a conversation that I recorded with my colleague, Anna Arbery, from our Environment and Society program. Anna, you may know possibly if you also listen to this as my co-host on the Climate Briefing podcast, which is another great podcast you should check out from Chatham House, (laughs) plug intended. And she's been up in Glasgow where COP26 has been happening. She, She was up there for nine days and she's just got back down to London and she joined me in the media studio to help us interpret what happened, what exactly was agreed in Glasgow and all of the different controversies that have been spinning out in the media since since the summit finished <laughs> and, and everybody flew off in their private jets back to their <laughs> back to their uh, offices so yeah i hope you enjoy it great shall we have a listen Okay, so for this first interview, for this episode, I'm joined by my colleague, Anna Arbery, from the Environment and Society Programme at Chatham House. Anna, thanks so much for joining me in person. 
Hi, Ben. It's a real honor to be on the main Chatham House podcast, although I do love the climate briefing, of course. (laughs) Absolutely. And and don't worry, we're going to be plugging the climate briefing throughout this conversation. (laughs) We'll we'll get it in. Anna, among her many other activities here at Chatham House, is the co-host with me of the Climate Briefing podcast, which has been broadcasting for, I think, nearly two years now. And it's all about COP, all about the UNFCCC process. And in the run up to COP26, we covered all aspects of the climate negotiations. And we also did some some live episodes from COP26 itself. So you should definitely go and check out that podcast wherever you're listening to this one. But sales pitch over, no more ads. (laughs) Anna, we're just going to have a chat now about what happened in Glasgow over the last couple of weeks and maybe what some of the expectations were and, and what actually got decided in the negotiations when it came down to it late on Saturday night at the end of the negotiations. First off, you got back from Glasgow a couple of days ago. Have you recovered? Are you okay? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I'm I'm fine. I mean, uh, full disclosure, I was only there during the, the second week. And obviously, the, the train journey from London to Glasgow is not that long. So <laughs> full sympathy with all those who traveled uh, halfway across the world and who were there for the two weeks or even longer. But I do think my, my brain feels a bit foggy, so um, if I say anything half stupid, I blame it on that. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no judgment here. And yeah, thanks for coming on so soon after your trip back. So could you maybe set the scene for us, zoom back in time for two or three weeks and maybe tell us a bit about what the atmosphere was going into the summit itself? Obviously, there had been many different touch points in the climate negotiations throughout the last two years even. But what was really expected of COP26? What were the things that people really wanted to focus on? And and what did it feel like the outcomes were going to be going up to Glasgow? So a lot of the important work took place before COP26. The Paris Agreement has this bottom-up approach where governments themselves decide by how much they aim to reduce emissions during a certain period. And these uh, targets or pledges are called uh, nationally determined contributions in uh, kind of climate lingo. And uh, the first round of targets were submitted six years ago when the Paris Agreement was adopted. But when put together, those targets weren't ambitious enough at all to get us on track for the Paris Agreement's temperature goal, Mm. which is to limit warming to well below two degrees, preferably 1.5 degrees. But the Paris Agreement has these mechanisms where governments are supposed to come back every five years with a better offer. And the idea is then that when all these pledges are added up, they will put us on track. And COP26 was the first ambition moment in this sense. And ahead of the conference, governments were supposed to submit new plans. And a lot of governments did this. So we had a pretty good grasp of where we were on these nationally determined contributions going into the summit. Mm. Another such area is climate finance. More than a decade ago, developed countries promised to mobilize 100 billion US dollars per year in climate finance to help both developing countries reduce their emissions and to adapt to climate change impacts by 2020. Developed countries released a delivery plan for these funds a few days before the COP, which showed that it was almost certain the goal was not met in 2020 when it should have been met, but that it's likely it will be met in 2023. And in the run-up to COP, then, there were a lot of kind of pledges being made to try and and bridge this gap. So we had quite a good grasp of the finance. And on the pledges, it was clear, unfortunately, that we were still far away from where we needed to be. The UN released a couple of reports in Mm. the run-up to COP. And the most kind of recent one released just ahead of the summit showed that emissions were on track to rise by 16 percent by 2030. And just to put that in context, to be on track for 1.5 degrees, they would have need to fall by 45 percent. Yikes. Yeah. So that's kind of where we stood going into the summit. Yeah. Thanks so much. And then the early days of the summit were what was called the the leaders summit, the point where world leaders actually came together in person to to give their speeches. and, And similar to the UN General Assembly, which we spoke about on a previous podcast, there's quite a lot of symbolism attached to those days it seemed but could you tell us about what was actually announced at that time obviously we'll come on to the negotiations that then carried on for a long time were there any sort of notable headlines from the from the leaders summit part of COP? Yeah and it was really interesting to listen in and to watch as I said I I wasn't there in person at that point but you could follow everything online so Mm. I actually I think I saw maybe 80-90% of the, the statements and there were a few more 
announcements made related to mitigation. India, for instance, came forward with a pledge to achieve net zero emissions by 2070. And it also made a few more short-term mitigation pledges. There were a few other NDC updates from a few countries and some developed countries also came forward with new funds. What I really take away, though, uh, what was strongest for me was listening to the climate-vulnerable nations, especially Mm. the small island states, for whom this is really an existential question. And I think that was probably one of the most powerful moments of the entire COP for me, listening to the president of the Maldives, for instance, going on stage and saying that the difference between 1.5 degrees and 2 degrees is a death sentence Mm. for for the Maldives. Really uh, important sense of urgency that gets injected when you hear messages like that. Could you just explain a bit to me about what was actually happening in Glasgow over those two weeks? Because obviously we have the leader summit and then you have these negotiations going on behind the scenes, which ultimately resulted in this text that people signed up to at the end of the fortnight. But then throughout that time, there were also lots of other announcements and coalitions saying we've agreed to do this and trying to get people to sign up to things. And how do all of those bits kind of relate to one another? What meant what and (laughs) how exactly did people spend their time up there? (laughs) No, it's a very good question. And it's quite hard sometimes to get your head around these COPs, let alone all the acronyms. (laughs) As you say, it started with the leader summit. Lots of leaders were there, some weren't, which was a point of discussion at the start. And then they went home after Mm. two, three days. Then the negotiators took over and the more kind of technical negotiations began and proceeded throughout the first week. Along with these big, I'm sure you remember, we had a lot of kind of big announcements coming Mm. out during the first week on um, phasing out coal, halting deforestation, There was a coalition that was formed that will end financing for fossil fuels overseas. And those deals aren't formal parts of the UNFCCC process. It was something Mm. that the UK government had had wanted as a means of, you know, getting implementation underway, accelerating climate action, perhaps with the recognition that we would not achieve everything on the emission reduction targets. And uh, most of those deals were announced during the first week. There were also a few during the second week. Perhaps most interestingly, there was a new alliance that was announced, led by Costa Rica and Denmark, which uh, focuses on phasing out oil and gas production. Mm. Then during the second week, the ministers flew in and uh, they kind of took what the negotiators had done and they continued the work on trying to strike these deals and agreements in different areas. Mm. It was supposed to end on Friday. There were a few outstanding issues. The talks overran and the whole process was concluded quite late on on Saturday. To be clear, that's often the case, isn't it? In many of the past COPs, these things have overrun past the sort of end date. Yeah, it does happen. And I mean, these are technical things. Decisions are made by consensus. There is a lot at stake. So it's not strange, I think. Mm. I I was actually expecting it to run for longer. I kept kind of buying additional hotel nights. (laughs) (laughs) I just feel sorry for all of the caterers and (laughs) and, uh, the conference centre organisers themselves having to sort of go, Okay, maybe I have to come back tomorrow. (laughs) Okay, so we've kind of set the scene. Thanks so much for that. What then actually happened. We've seen so many sort of different takes on whether this was a crazy success, we got loads done, or people saying this is a betrayal of the rest of humanity and <laughs> so a massive spectrum of, of reactions to what was actually agreed. But could you just give us a bit of a summary? You know, did we keep 1.5 alive? Where did we end up on the finance question? Just give us an overview. Sure. So I think the outcome of COP26 is not at all ambitious enough but it's still more ambitious than I expected it to be. Mm. For instance, as I said at the start, we had quite a clear picture of where we stood on these national emission reduction targets ahead of COP26. We were heading for a warming of 2.7 degrees by the end of the century, which would be absolutely catastrophic. I mean, there is a positive story related to the targets as well. Over 120 countries did submit these plans. Well, a second plan. And that was actually not a given six years ago when the Paris Agreement was adopted. We did Mm. not know if this ratchet mechanism, which is this ambition ration function, was going to work. Then there were a few more announcements made related to these 2030 targets at COP. 
And we're now heading for warming of 2.4 degrees, just looking at those targets, which is, you know, definitely not good enough. That said, probably the main outcome coming out of COP26 was this deal called the Glasgow Climate Pact, which requests countries to not wait another five years Mm. to update their targets, but to come back next year with emission reduction targets aligned with the Paris Agreement's temperature goal. I think this was really, really crucial. Obviously, the proof is in the pudding. It remains to be seen if governments will get their act together Mm. and raise ambition in the next year. We are hearing Australia saying already that it will not raise its target. So, you know, we're definitely not there yet, but at least there is still some hope. I think if there hadn't been references like that, which I actually didn't expect, Mm. then we'd be in a definitely in a much worse place. I also think these initiatives we spoke about earlier were a positive element of COP26. There have been concerns and accusations around potential greenwashing and, you know, governments just talking but not doing. Mm. And again, it's absolutely crucial to ensure that all these pledges are implemented. But some of them have the, the potential to be quite transformational. On finance and on adaptation and on loss and damage, I think it's clear more will need to be done. Mm. There was a lot of frustration and, and anger and disappointment that this 100 billion goal was has not been met, that it's been delayed. Mm. There is a lot to say about finance. We can talk about that more later. But overall, I mean, there is still hope. 1.5 is not dead. It's, mm. it's alive, but it really depends on what governments do now yeah. in the next year. Yeah, and we'll come to the future and, and what we should be looking out for next towards the end of this. But let's pick up that finance question. Before you explain what actually was agreed on the money, could you tell us a bit about this loss and damage question and, and why it is such a controversial aspect of the negotiations? This issue of loss and damage, it was a real kind of make or break issue at COP26. When we're talking about loss and damage, we're essentially talking about economic and non-economic harms caused by climate change impacts that cannot be avoided through adaptation or mitigation. And climate vulnerable developing countries uh, were coming to COP26 and many of these are being devastated by climate change impacts and they don't have the means to, to deal with this. So they were coming to COP with demands and calling on developed countries to, to to help them. And there were a few different aspects of the loss and damage agenda, but I think the, the central thing was that the G77 plus China put forth a proposal to establish a special loss and damage financing facility, which developed countries did not want to have. And this caused a lot of controversy. And in the end, developing countries conceded and uh, agreed to the final Glasgow Climate Pact anyway. But I think this is a discussion that is definitely going to continue. Mm. It was decided in the Glasgow Climate Pact that there will be a, a dialogue on loss and damage finance. We'll see where that lands. Developing countries were clear that they didn't want another talk shop, but that they wanted this dialogue to actually result in something concrete. So at COP25, the last COP, it was decided to set up a technical assistance facility network essentially related to loss and damage and some more progress was made at COP26 in you know defining the form and function of that and it was also decided that this it's called the Santiago network on loss and damage would be provided with funds so that was another kind of loss and damage deliverable but yeah this is really something something to watch in the next well not just the next year in in the future in general obviously it's just going to get worse Mm. and I think it will be essential to find a path forward. Yeah, thanks for explaining that. I mean, it maybe it risks us getting into the weeds a bit, but what do you know of the reasons why developing countries are so reluctant to sort of engage with this more substantially? Why why weren't they prepared to sign up to the proposal at COP26? Historically, at least, loss and damage has been very much associated with the historic responsibility mm. of uh, developed countries for causing climate change. And uh, developing countries have been demanding compensation for this. And, well, there has probably been a big fear among um, developed countries that the sums would be absolutely enormous. And it's like opening a Pandora's box if they agree to to compensate for these harms. It's important to note that when the Paris Agreement was adopted in 2015, not in the agreement itself, but in its decision text, 
there was this clause which said that the inclusion of loss and damage in the Paris Agreement did not provide the basis for claiming compensation, but that money could be provided in a more in solidarity, or I don't remember the exact wording, but to help. And maybe that is the path forward, that developed countries would not provide finance as compensation, but to find a solution to a very real problem that is causing immense harm and that is just going to get worse. Yeah. Thanks for unpacking that all, because I think it's a really, really good example of how uh, important the phrasing of these clauses in the agreements that are being made, how important that is and how into the nitty gritty the negotiations get in terms of the semantics almost of of these discussions. I don't want to keep you forever because you've <laughs> you've got to continue your post-cop recovery but I wanted to just ask if you could explain one other thing that has been sort of hitting the headlines a bit and obviously we saw at the end of COP26 there was some controversy around how it ended particularly relating to this idea of phasing out coal and wording being changed from we're going to phase out coal to we're going to phase down coal and things that were sort of seen as diluting this message. Could you just sort of unpack that a bit and maybe also just comment on the way that it's being presented as China and India hijacking the negotiations at the last minute and all of this sort of stuff? What's behind all of that story? Yeah, sure. So I think it was on the the Wednesday during the second week, a first draft of this Glasgow Climate Pact was released. And it included this section that I spoke about before, about coming back earlier with NDCs. It included sections on loss and damage, on adaptation, on adaptation finance, and so on. And interestingly, it also included, for the first time ever in a COP decision, wordings around phasing out, well, coal and Mm. fossil fuel subsidies. And it sounds absolutely weird (laughs) that (laughs) there haven't been any COP decisions before that mention fossil fuels, given that fossil fuels are such a major contributor to climate change. But yeah, it hasn't been the case. So this Mm. was seen as, wow, if this makes its way into the final text, that could really be something. And the text was watered down over the course of the last few days and also in the final moments essentially of the COP where yeah, China and India said that they didn't want it to be worded in such strict terms. I, I do think though that even if the language was toned down, it is a really important thing. It is it is historic that fossil fuels are now mentioned in this COP decision. Mm. And I am pretty sure that, you know, next year's and and in the years going forward, there will be a strong push to strengthen the language. Now it's focused on phasing down coal, coal power generation, and uh, phasing out inefficient fossil fuel subsidies. But, well, you could see the the language on those two things being strengthened and also expanding to include oil and gas, Mm. for instance, going forward. So that, along with these initiatives that were made during the first and second week on phasing out coal and on phasing out oil and gas production, on ending financing for fossil fuel projects overseas. Together, it sends a strong message Mm. as well to governments across the world and to investors that the fossil fuel era is something that is going. Absolutely. Okay, so it's already been announced then that COP27 next year will take place in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt. Could you just, as we end now, give us a sense of what the key issues are that are being handed over to COP27 and what's going to happen in the intervening period as well? Are we also going to see other sort of important summit journeys on the way over the next year that we should be keeping an eye on? COP27 will be super important. I know all negotiators and governments must be absolutely exhausted after these weeks in Glasgow. But hey, the work begins now because 1.5 isn't saved. We're not anywhere close where we need to be on uh, the emission reduction targets. So yeah, that diplomacy starts now. Ambition must increase. And there's also a real need to deliver more on, on finance. And I'm not just talking about the 100 billion goal now. That's really important. And there also needs to be more finance for for adaptation. There was a good clause on this in this Glasgow Climate Pact where developed countries promised to double adaptation finance by 2025. But, you know, more needs to be done and Mm. that must also be delivered. But then there is a need to mobilize more money from all sorts of 
sources, including the private sector. And essentially, we need to mobilize trillions to enable this transition. And I think that's something that was so clear in in this COP2 and has been clear in the climate talks all along, that developing countries are in need of finance. Many are highly reliant on fossil fuels still. Uh, Mm. They have big problems with poverty and so on. And if we're going to make this work, there needs to be an even bigger push on finance. And I do not want to detract either from the necessity of providing grants, because that's very much needed for the poorest countries especially. There will also need to be more progress made on this loss and damage agenda. It's not going to go away. It's just going to get uh, more and more acute. I think one other thing that was positive coming out of COP26 was that finally, after years of negotiations, governments managed to agree on the so-called implementation guide for the Paris Agreement. It's called the Paris Rulebook. Mm. It's very technical, but uh, essentially the Paris Agreement sets the overarching goals that the climate work should strive towards. But then it wasn't ready to be implemented. So just uh, one year after the agreement was adopted, governments came together again to kind of negotiate the technical rules governing the implementation of the agreement. And most of that was concluded in 2018, but there were a few issues that were left unresolved which have now actually been concluded related to international carbon markets and on reporting standards and so on. So that also frees up space Mm. at COP27. There's no need to negotiate those issues anymore. They're done. So now it's focus on raising ambition and implementing all the pledges that have been made. It will be very important to hold governments and other stakeholders to, to account going forward. Yeah. Thanks so much, Anna. That, that's been really, really interesting. Can you just, in our last sort of moments for a shameless plugging, could you tell us how we can keep up with Chatham House's work on, on climate policy as in the run up to COP27? Yeah, sure. God, we have so, so much going on. <laughs> <laughs> well, one is, of course, to listen to the climate briefing, yes. which we already plugged earlier. <laughs> And then we'll be producing a lot of reports, convening a lot of events uh, over the course of next year. So you, to keep on track, you can subscribe to our newsletter, for instance. You know, follow us on LinkedIn, on, on Twitter. And if you're in London, you know, feel free to give us a call or send us an email if you want to come over for a, a chat. We have a very nice library where one can have coffee and, and chat. <laughs> Would heartily recommend all of those things. Anna Arbery, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Ben. Hello, I'm joined by James Griffiths. Hi, James. Thank you so much for being with us. How are you today? Hi, I'm great. Thanks for having me. So as, as you know, but our listeners don't, we're here to talk a bit more about your book, which is coming out a bit later this week, entitled Speak Not, Empire, Identity and the Politics of Language. So if we could start with a general idea for the book. When I was reading it, I noticed that it's not really an academic book. It's not really just a purely historical account or a travelogue. So how would you describe Speak Not to our listeners? And could you share with us which audiences you had in mind while you were writing the book? Yeah, so the the book is kind of a portrait of three languages with brief digressions into other ones, but it focuses mainly on Welsh, Hawaiian and Cantonese. So my interest in Welsh comes from my own heritage. I was born and grew up in Wales as, as a Welsh speaker. Cantonese comes from the fact that I, I, I live in Hong Kong, where it's the primary language. And then Hawaiian, the idea of, of that was to look for an, another language which kind of intersected with another empire and, and it, kind of imperial power in the same way that, that Welsh has intersected with the British Empire over time. Cantonese is, is intersecting both with historical Chinese empires and the current and the modern People's Republic, and then Hawaiian in the way that it intersected with the American Empire, that that it really fits kind of in between those two other languages. Um, So the book is a work of journalism, is reporting from from all three communities um, and and looking at how these languages relate to each other and can be compared to each other, and then also how they're at different stages of either vulnerability, of kind of heading towards becoming minoritized or or becoming uh, repressed, and coming back from that so so the revival process is mainly in wales where, where there's been a very successful um revival efforts over over the last couple of decades um but also to a lesser extent hawaii and then cantonese is very much kind of heading the other direction great so you sort of anticipated my second question which i was going to lay out for our listeners that obviously the, the book is divided into these three languages and you have a, a different connection with the three of them and the book is sort of structured in three main sections around these 
So you've mentioned a little bit why you chose these languages. Would you like to explore a bit more of what they have in common or what lessons can be drawn from the examples that you explore? So the really interesting thing for me as a Welsh speaker was living in Hong Kong and seeing the conversation around Cantonese here, being very, very reminiscent of the conversation around Welsh when I was growing up, a concern that there were less and less people speaking the language, that children weren't necessarily going to be taught it as their primary language in schools, and that what that might say for the future of the language. And, and that got me interested in, in, in digging into these comparisons further. And, and I realized in doing this research, doing reports, that Welsh is actually something of a model for other minority languages around the world, you know, not just in Asia, but in, in the Americas, or across Europe. And, you know, for anyone that's been to Wales and is familiar with Wales as a population of only 3 million people, it's not very often that, that we are influential on the global stage. So that got me very interested. And then looking at how other languages have built on the kind of findings and the, the lessons of the, of the Welsh experience. And, and that kind of helped me bring me to Hawaii as well as how that exists as a community as well. And, and so to see how this model of language revival has, has really been kind of created and refined by communities all over the world, and that they're all kind of building on each other and, and learning from each other, and that there is now a very strong model for how to revive a language and how to protect a language. And the key question is, is generally of political will, not necessarily about technique or, you know, any kind of educational policy that we know what the policy needs to be. It's just whether it can be achieved. Great. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because I did notice that throughout the book, you argue that the model for language revitalization is now clearer than, than ever before. And I was wondering if you could maybe highlight any of the strengths or maybe weaknesses or space for improvement within the model that you've just mentioned. Yes, yeah, so the, the Welsh model, um, since kind of the 1980s, there's, there's been a focus on getting it back into schools. It is it's increasingly become one of the primary languages for education in Wales. I, I grew up in the 80s and 90s and, and was educated in, in Welsh. My generation was the first to have that be the case for you know centuries. Uh, and that has been very, very effective. You know, the, the, Getting the language into school is, is definitely the most uh, important factor in all, all of this and helping to revive languages. Where the Welsh Welsh model slightly falls short and where there is definitely room for improvement is the government has set this target of, of a million speakers by 2030 and campaigners have kind of argued that that while education policy is helping in that regard it could definitely go further we could shift to having Welsh be the primary language in all schools and then also there is there is kind of need for more support within wider society so there's there's this problem in Wales or there is this criticism of the current policy in Wales which is called English first bilingualism which is kind of bilingualism somewhat in name only that there is technically the option for Welsh but generally it's always English and, and that English is still the primary language and, and so you know it shows that there is more work to do but in terms of preventing decline and kickstarting a revival the Welsh experiment has been hugely successful you know this is a language which was on the verge of dying out or was certainly headed into terminal decline at the start of the century and is now growing again which is you know a huge achievement. It's great to hear. And at the same time, you were mentioning the turn of the century. And something I noticed is that the story of the languages that you talk about in the book have this sort of common time frame around the turn of the century. They sort of start around the 19th to 20th century. And one of the things that you write in the conclusion is that most nominally monoglot countries are in fact multilingual. And this got me thinking, if you could explore a bit more to what extent do you see this present appearance in today's society as, as a consequence of empire and imperial legacies? So why, why are these, these appearances problematic for contemporary societies? Yeah, so I think the idea of countries being monolingual, especially when we look at it in the British sense in, from the, the, the former British Empire, that this is very much both a kind of culturally imperialist idea and, and also comes from the fact that we once had a very, you know, monoglot ruling class, though actually I'm sure many members of that ruling class were multilingual themselves. The the policy was very English focused and, and you know, all over the world, we, you know, saw uh, languages oppressed in, in British India 
um, policy in in Australia was was very um, English English heavy and, and anti Indigenous languages, and and even back home, this idea of of Britain as being an English speaking country has had a very dire effect on on the Welsh language, but also other minority languages within the British Empire that have now largely been incredibly minoritized. So, so Kanawick, Cornish, which is is you know had to be revived from being a dead language at one point. Irish in 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 the North of Ireland that you know these these languages were were you know suppressed even more than Welsh was, and and that by the time you have kind of the end of empire and the post-colonial society, it is very easy for people to forget that this was a multilingual country at one time and 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 now it still, you know, still is to a large extent, but that policy tends to be made in favor of English and in favor of monolingualism. And, and it kind of ignores the fact that there are both these indigenous languages to, to the British Isles. And then there's also, of course, a huge foreign born or foreign heritage population who speak a number of different languages. And, and you know, just because the main language that you hear on the BBC happens to be English does not mean that there's necessarily a, a solely English speaking country. And, and that, I think, does feed into the policymaking in quite a negative way. And it would really help a lot of countries, not just the UK, but to recognize themselves as, as multilingual and if I could bring you back to something you said earlier on when you were talking about the case studies that you chose and the, the imperial connections, uh, why did you feel it was important to have or to showcase different empires and the way that they behave towards their colonies or towards different languages and, and cultures more broadly? At the same time, the, the model for language revival is kind of very well realized and similar and works across languages. The the kind of model of oppression and the model of advancing monolingualism has also also largely been the same over time and we saw this both in where the british empire ruled around the world and you know first at home and then as colonialism spread around and then also in in us policy in hawaii um, and now increasingly in in chinese language policy um, both in the prc and and in hong kong and these arguments are, tend to be very very similar and tend to be sometimes made from a positive place that it, it, it's you know you're talking about trying to make gains in education, trying to improve communication across, across the country, sometimes trying to improve uh, literacy in various places. But what it often results in is not necessarily lifting one language up in the way that the policy envisions, but often in suppressing minority languages or suppressing heritage languages. Uh, so, so we saw this in Wales, where there was a big push to, to improve education in Wales, which was in a very, very dire situation at, at the end of the 19th century. But that what resulted from that was not so much improving education across the board, it was improving education in English and then suppressing the use of Welsh. The same thing in Hawaiian, that when the Hawaiian education system was reformed, it, it involved getting rid of Hawaiian and replacing it with English. And, and we've seen that as well in China, that the very, very well-intentioned promotion of of, of Mandarin in China to improve kind of general literacy across the country and improve nationwide communication has not only been promoting one language, it's nearly always been the suppression of, of local ones in this idea that there can only be one language and, and the kind of zero-sum competition, which, which kind of goes back to the point of how monolingualism really affects this, or what I call a monoglot mindset, really affects this policy negatively. Because if you believe that people can only speak one language, then of course, that naturally leads to language suppression, because if you want them to speak a specific language, they have to stop speaking the other one. And, and so that's how you get this policy comes out of that. And and so, yeah, so, so seeing this similarity in all of these countries and all of these um, experiences, that I think is useful for then looking at how policy could be changed in future and what can be learned from it. Because, you know, in the same way that we have a positive model for language revival, we have a very, very negative model repeated over and over around the world that, that we should learn from as well. Fascinating. And uh, I think you're obviously now talking about this model of oppression. And I really like the, the link that you made between a model of oppression and gains in education. And so a very clear way in which empires and also post-colonial governments shape the fate of languages is indeed through these education policies and the education system that you're mentioning. And indeed, the language of instruction is usually a point of contention, not only for Welsh, Hawaiian and Cantonese, but also one of your interludes in, in Africans, which got me thinking about the politicization of languages. So my question would be, how have you found education policies and uh, this politics of language to impact its users or former users? 
Yeah, so this is where the the Chinese model is is or the Chinese story is very important because Welsh and Hawaiian are both in the process of reviving. So there there is a big effort to improve both those sort of land standing and 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 support them. The context in China has become such that trying to promote uh, indigenous languages or, or heritage languages is often seen, you know, not as positive or, or even as as old fashioned, but act- actively hostile. That, you know, we've seen in Tibet and Xinjiang that that promoting Uyghur or promoting a Tibetan language is often seen as being pro separatist, as being pro independence. You know that that it's been so hyper politicized that you really can't do it anymore that that to promote Tibetan language or promote education in Tibetan is really sticking your neck out you may as well be calling for the return of the Dalai Lama you know it, it is it is incredibly political and what's increasingly the case is that's happening not only with non-Chinese languages but with Chinese languages as well so in Hong Kong the use of Cantonese is becoming politicized that it is has been somewhat connected to the people who are advocating for Hong Kong independence and and the through my reporting that a lot of people that I spoke to were, were very worried that this is this is the trend that will go down in future. That you know, since we now have a national security law in Hong Kong, which is very hostile to ideas of separatism or, or secession or even or subversion, that promoting Cantonese over Mandarin, you know, the language of the of the nation, could be seen as subversive or secessionist, and that obviously will hasten its decline and and make its protection even more difficult. And as a follow-up question, do you do you share these worries from the people that you interviewed? Yeah, I think it's it's very clear that you, there have been long-term efforts to to promote Mandarin speaking in Hong Kong. The fact that Hong Kong doesn't share a language with, with the mainland has often been seen as as one of the reasons for the fact that it hasn't been kind of fully integrated with the rest of the country. And and that that you know children and and young people in Hong Kong are always told to to better understand China, and and you know part of that is to, to teach them in Mandarin. And, and and so now that we most of the opposition has been removed from the legislature here and and the role of civil society has been greatly curtailed that these sectors that used to act on a check on that kind of ambition to to replace uh, replace Cantonese with Mandarin have increasingly been weakened and and so yeah I, I expect that this will accelerate in future and that that like most proponents of the language are concerned might most proponents of the language fear that that what will happen is that trying to push back against this will be seen as as um, subversive. Indeed. And uh, for each language, you document the role of individuals and minority movements or even instance of protest more broadly in terms of advocating for language revival or preservation. And uh, again, this is especially the case in the context of the pro-democracy protest that you were mentioning in, in Hong Kong. So my question is, what role can activism and the wider civil society play in protecting and revitalizing languages? I, th- I think a very, very large one, uh, if we look at Welsh and, and Hawaiian again, you, this is something that has been driven very much from the ground up that by activists and civil society groups promoting the use of language by concerted protest. Uh, in Wales, there was uh, decades of protests over, you know, seemingly minor things like like road signs and, and government documents, but that have a real major effect on on the prestige of the language and of, of normalizing its use within society. So, so Welsh groups, uh, which is a Welsh language society, they had a protest campaign for years of, of you know, refusing to respond to government documents or, or legal documents that were only in English. And, and several, there was a lot of court cases, a lot of people went to prison, various other conservative protests around the country. And, and, and this had a major effect. And that we saw the same in Hawaiian with protests. Obviously, protests in Hong Kong and civil societies played a major role and, and is now being actively suppressed. The reason activism and protests are so important when it comes to languages is that you know, when we're talking about minority tongues, especially ones on the verge of extinction, there never is going to be a you know mass political movement to, to protect these languages. You know, in the same way that if you were to, I, I don't know, if you you know, in the same way if we if you compare it maybe to to Canada, where there obviously is the, is a substantial French speaking population, that while it is a minority language, it is, it is a politically powerful one and and one that that policymakers have to respond to. That 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 is something they need to genuflect to in in terms of during a election and, and in policymaking that whereas a 
seriously minoritized language is never really going to have that. And, and so you need activists to put this on the agenda. You need often need protests, often need demonstrations to, to you know, get the attention of the wider society and, and connect them with this issue, explain why this is important and, and get widespread support for this. And, and we've seen that in, in Wales as well, that, you know, this is not just a goal that's been driven by the Welsh speaking community, that the Anglo-Welsh community as well has become very, very supportive of it. Welsh is still technically a minority language in Wales, but it is one that there is complete cross-party support for preserving and protecting. I really appreciate the point that you're making about access to the political agenda and how for minority communities that are stripped of power, this access to political spaces and and therefore change is much more limited and hence the the role for activists and and movements. And I think that comes across quite clearly in the book as well. Mm. And since you you keep going back to your Welsh example, and obviously it's it's the one that, that speaks closer to your heart, I noticed that earlier in the book, uh, you describe how your father has been using Duolingo, this flashcards smartphone app, uh, to study uh, Welsh. And I wanted to, so we've talked about this top-down and bottom-up approaches to to the model, but I also wanted to ask, in your opinion, uh, how can uh, technology promote language and cultural diversity without being instrumentalized for what you describe as cultural vandalism? Yeah, and and this is a very difficult subject and and it's a somewhat controversial one there is this concern uh, among some linguists that technology can lead to this thing called digital language death and it's and it's basically the idea that certain languages have not been digitized or are not in the process of being digitized so, so that you might use x language at home talking to your parents even talking to your friends but when you're on your phone or on your computer you're not using that language you know you're texting in a different language you're you're using a, a latin keyboard there maybe isn't support for your your native language so so maybe you're you're using a latinized version of it or not even using it at all and this is a genuine concern that a lot of countries have iceland for example has invested millions of dollars in digitizing Icelandic to help improve services offered in, in that language, to, to assist tech companies with, with offering their services in that language. And it is very, very important to have this, you know, that again, you need to be immersed, as anyone that's tried to learn a language knows, you really need to be immersed in the language to, to maintain fluency, and, and especially when you're, you're learning it and you're trying to, to promote fluency. So this is very, very important. And, and I think while there definitely is this danger of digital language death, and I think those arguments are, are strong, that what's very encouraging is that as the technology advances and as you have these various apps and services, so so like Duolingo, like the Wikipedia project, the kind of broader non-English language Wikipedia project, like various other um, communities online, you know, even like things like Zoom, which we're using uh, to speak at the moment, that it is actually making the, the kind of task of language preservation easier. And so while there is a slight extra danger, there is also a huge gain from technology that that there wasn't in the past. So, you know, it's a lot easier to create a database of of a language now than it ever was. There are these tools which which maybe not uh, an exact fit can be quite easily modified to fit a new language and to help preserve it. So I, I talk in the book about Duolingo, both in the context of my father using it, but also um, in terms of how it's been used to teach minority languages. And this is a priority of the company. And I went out to, to Pittsburgh to their headquarters to, to meet with their engineers and stuff to talk about this. And one of the really interesting things they said was that as they add each kind of new language, it becomes easier to add the next one. So, so for things like, you know, even quite basic things, like when, when they added Arabic, they had to introduce support for right to left uh, character rec- recognition or, or and, and the way that Arabic characters affect the one next to it and the way that you write it on a screen, you know, quite technical things like that. But that makes the next one they do that for much easier, introducing various ways of speaking. So when introducing Chinese languages makes it easier to introduce a character-based system in future, things like that. And the same with uh, minority languages. So there are, there are, they've added a number of, of South African languages, including Osa, which obviously has a sound in it and multiple um, fricatives like that. And that needs a certain type of support in it, but that for the next language, that support's already there. And, and so I think we're seeing this improvements being shared around the world. And again, in the way, in the same way that the model for language revival has been shared, now the model for how to digitize one's language and how to create digital resources for a language is being shared and is being followed by communities all over the world. Thank you so much, James. I really like how speaking of technology sort of reminds you that both languages and the, the processes through which you can advocate for their protection in a way 
are evolving and changing whilst being shared at, uh, simultaneously between the different communities. I think, not to play devil's advocate, but I think a, a, good, a good way of closing is I wanted to ask, why does it matter if languages are preserved? So if you had to answer this one question, uh, so wouldn't it be better if we all spoke the same language in a way? That's the, the classic question. It, it tends to be put forward by monoglots who are only, spe- only speak their own language and don't appreciate what it's like to have a language be marginalized or, or taken away. But to address the language, you know, it is very painful for communities to use their language and, and it has a genuine effect on communities that, you know, that there are, uh, there's been research done both in Canada and Australia with indigenous communities there and, and ones that have retained their languages have better educational, better health, uh, economic outcomes, uh, and those that don't deal with a lot of alienation and, and depression. And, and so there is a real human cost to losing languages. But, but even if, We've worked out some way, I think, of, of, you know, even if there was some way to address that and to, to bypass it and, and that, you know, we just move towards a single global language in, you know, in the name of communication, the kind of Esperanto dream, as it were. Even then, I think we really lose something by losing linguistic diversity that, that, that you know, anyone that, that speaks multiple languages knows that there are certain thoughts and concepts which are easy to, easier to express in, in some languages, that, that some languages are just better at, at discussing certain topics. And, and that also there are, there are stories that only really make sense in some languages. There are ways of thinking that these cultivate. There's art, there's, there's music, there's poetry in, in languages, and, and, you know, they don't necessarily work in translation. And, and so, you know, we really lose something culturally as a species if we lose uh, linguistic diversity you know there there are activists who kind of compare this to you know the global extinction of, of biodiversity that this is you know this is something we're losing globally and and that you know it's also the kind of thing you don't really realize until it's too late and and that we might not realize at all in a way because if we lose if languages go extinct and we lose them we can't even you know, we can't even read what's there. We can't even even really ascertain what's been lost. And and, and so I think it is important. And, you know, the main argument of the book is that, that multilingualism is a good thing and it only brings benefits. And it's not that difficult to promote. Plenty of countries do it all over the world. It is an important thing for governments to do, especially in a post-colonial sense, in the sense of reparations and undoing past wrongs. And it's beneficial. And, and that isn't to say, it's a kind of the obvious counterpoint to that is is people will say oh well you know what about people being able to talk to each other but arguing for language preservation does not mean arguing against having lingua francas and you know you can be a multilingual country with a shared lingua franca in a way that does not damage other languages and and that's what's so important that often trying to advance a national language or advance a lingua franca does damage minority languages and there is another way to do it in a way that only brings benefits Thank you so much for for putting that case forward uh, as an English and Portuguese speaker with with ambitions to learn Japanese. I, it speaks to my heart that some of the most hilarious things on the internet for me are watching or seeing uh, Portuguese traditional sayings uh, translated into English and the wisdom that you lose uh, in those attempted translations, which just become very good humor sources, but not really much else gets, like you're saying, captured in, in those translations. And the same thing when when uh, J- Japanese language uses uh, the Chinese characters and different ways that they have of expressing uh, either adjectives or describing the seasons. It's I always find it very hard to, to translate uh, those things and those cultural cues when learning another language, which if you're not a uh, monolingual or a monoglot, you will find an immense joy in as well. So uh, I think I'll leave it in that rather uh, positive advocating note. And thank you so much once again, James, for being with me today. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode of Undercurrents. Thank you very much for joining us and listening all the way to the end if you're if you're here in the outro with myself and Mariana. <laughs> <laughs> if you like what you heard, please do rate us and subscribe on whichever podcast app you're using to listen to this and check out our back catalogue. We've got over 120 previous episodes for you as well that you can check out on a whole range of different topics. I hope you enjoyed delving into those. If you could also tell your friends and family about the podcast and ask them to do the same, that would be massively appreciated because word of mouth is king and that's how other people will find us. Yeah, absolutely. And if you're interested in keeping up with the rest of Chatham House, uh, the rest of our content and publications and events, feel free to follow us on Twitter and check out our website for more information.
So that's it from us. We'll be back next week with another episode and we hope you can join us then.